This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Nine, you're tuned to 102.73 triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the old program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. And I'm Terry Allen. And we have Nerida as our panel beta today. She's come back into the studio revolving door style after having done live wire last night. <laughs> Home for a quick nap. Back in. And Kent in the green room. That's our whole team today. And Tim's out there somewhere having just delivered another fine three hours of radio and um, getting us into the Mother's Day. Th- By the way, happy Mother's Day to all those mothers out there. Yes, and, um, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. The one we've got here you, in the Brian. studio. <laughs> and it was nice getting in a bit of Johnny Cash talking about his mum. Very nice. It's good stuff. Mm. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Andrew, very much for Soulful Bits. Big milestone for Andrew next week, his 50th show. Wow. That's gone quickly, hasn't it? That's nearly a whole year. Today? Yes. Mother's Day? Yeah. You're kicking off, Dr. Beach. I'm, ki- I'm kicking off. I've got um, Paul, Dr. Paul Carnell is not coming into the studio. He's at home looking after his um, couple of mothers. Uh, but he's going to call into us from Clifton Springs down on the um, Bellarine Peninsula. And Paul has recently moved to, well, he's starting working out of Queenscliff, but through Deakin University. And we mentioned on this program a few weeks ago about the, the great urchin cull um, where people got into the water in the northwest part of the bay and were knocking urchins on the head with hammers because the urchins have been knocking off lots of weeds. Paul's been heading up that program with a few other individuals and he's going to talk to us about that in some detail in about seven or eight minutes' time. Great. And when we say weeds, we're talking about uh, not S- weeds in the sense that they're a pest. So, I'm sorry, no, seaweeds. Yes. So uh, kelps, okay. all sorts of... And, and also some green ones. Yeah. And we'll talk about the various different seaweeds, endemic natural seaweeds that are there which are being munched with alacrity by sea urchins. Mm, has and it? this has been increasing quite a bit over the last several years. It has quite a big flow-on effect for local ecology. Sure as hell does. Mm. Yeah. Terry, we're going to hit you up for a dive report. Yeah, we'll talk a bit of local diving. Um, the weather's uh, kind of got a bit nasty, but we can still get out there. Um, yeah, talk a bit about spider crabs and cuttlefish um, and then later on I'll talk in a bit more detail about our recent trip down to the southern part of the Philippines. Excellent. I, can't, I both can't wait to hear about that and I'm just going to sit here and cry probably. <laughs> Get in the water, Bron. <laughs> Don't just talk it, do it. I know. That, that, were my, that was my plan for summer. You miss summer. Yeah, <laughs> well, so I sprained my ankle quite badly yeah. and that put an end to that. So um, anyway... 
next summer <laughs> or earlier. Um, we are also going to be joined in studio by Ross Holmbu from Phillip Island Nature Park. He is part of a team that have uh, this week introduced a new portal called Seal Spotters and it's really cool. cool. I was having a look at it last night. There's a really neat little YouTube instructional video that shows you what to do mm. and it means that Everybody who's listening right now can be part of this. It's a it's a citizen science project where because they have just so many seals to monitor and it's just physically not humanly possible to do it, they're, they're putting a call out for people to get involved and help them in their efforts to assess the dynamics of uh, seal colonies. Another great example of citizen science. It's brilliant. Mm. It's really good. So Ross is going to come in and talk to us about that. And, uh, yeah, then Terry, as you said, diving in the Philippines. Yeah. You know, as well. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Wish I was back there now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you're not. We're glad you're here. Uh, let's do some weather, Dr. Beach. Uh, let's. Yeah. It's, um, well, we had oh, a nice bit of rain. I, 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 I drove to the west of the state, down to Warrnambool the other day, and oh, God, we went from Queenscliff to Warrnambool on Thursday evening and oh. just got hammered heading mm. west. It was wet. Those trucks, these FBTs are coming towards us and just going, Psh, and Yeah. And the road is not great. The road's not fantastic, particularly once you get, to get past Colac and mm. it's, um, you know, you've got traffic coming ahead. To, but anyway, let, let's talk about the weather right now. 17 degrees today, medium chance of showers most likely this morning. Winds south-southeast, 15 to 25k per hour, becoming light in the late evening. Not much rain, oh, if any, less than a millimetre. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, 16 degrees. Tuesday, 15 degrees. Wednesday, 14 degrees with... Very little. A chance of rain on Wednesday, chance of rain on Thursday. So, yeah, temperature's going to be around 14, 15, 16 throughout the week and the lows are getting down to Thursday morning, 7 degrees, looking to be the the lowest of the lows. <laughs> so, yeah, autumn, proper autumn in Melbourne for one thing. God, isn't it beautiful, the trees, that are, well, the, yeah. the exotic trees that are changing colours around the place, but it truly is my favourite time of year in this fair city that we live in. Beautiful. I'm quite relieved it's finally here. Yep. It's a bit disconcerting. Well, hang on, I've got to do the tides too. Oh, yeah, do the tides. I forgot all about that. So for those of you heading out on the water, um, Point Lonsdale, high tide at 9.34am this morning. So in about half an hour, it's going to be high tide down at Lonnie. Um, according to Swellnet, well, you, if you're interested in getting out on the water, you're going to get on Swellnet, but... Or have a look at some other kind of online thing. But I'm, for what it's worth, I'll read out here what it says in the Sunday Age, which is, is straight from Swellnet, which says a moderate to, or moderate to fresh south-southeast wind is creating poor surfing conditions along with a mix of weak, fading, subtly wind swell and infrequent west-southwest ground swells. Well, as, a, as a diver, what would you say about oh, that, Terry? Yeah, we don't like the swells. But speaking of swells, my favourite site, uh, as well as Swellnet, is uh, Bay Winds. And I'm uh, hoping to chat with, with the wind junkie one day on this show. Uh, and they, he reported, uh, I think it was Friday, 11.3-metre um, wave detected in the heads. In, in the best, heads? Yes. In best, you know, there's the boy just out of, just outside the heads. 11.3 metres. Wow. Yep. <laughs> Can't quite imagine that. But, well, uh, that's a perfect um, segue. I don't <laughs> usually like that word, but anyway, this, yeah. this time I'm using it. Into a story which you actually put me on to, Terry. Right. The largest wave ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, yeah. 23.8 metres. So yeah. picture your standard 25 <laughs> metre swimming pool and that's how high the wave was. Mm. The wave. Yeah. Yikes. 23.8 metres. And as always, the Kiwi is showing us how it's done because it was done um, off Campbell Island, um, which is in New Zealand waters. There you go. Wow. So it's actually smashed the previous record of 19.4 um, metres, which is still monstrous. Mm. And that was recorded in May of last year. I was thinking it's a bit like the rain. We seem to get these rain events now. We get a whole dose of rain and then we don't get anything. And so yeah. <laughs> it's just environmentally worry about, yeah. 11 metres of the head's pretty massive. Yeah. And just a really quick plug and then we'll play some music. This is, um, uh, I noticed this one through, um, again, the socials and particularly the group uh, down on the Mornington Peninsula side of the bay, the Mornington Peninsula. They've taken part in uh, a global, is it global yet? Maybe starting to head that way. Definitely national movement to reduce the number of plastic straws that we use. Um, and we had some discussion around that a couple of weeks ago. Yes, of course, in some instances, they're very worthwhile, but in many instances, they're not. So uh, this, is, this is a little offshoot called the Peninsula's Last Straw, 
and what they're doing just want drawing some attention to it because it's really great that um, that some businesses are taking part. Ten local businesses are being part of a trial. It's being supported by Tangaroa Blue Source Reduction Workshop and in conjunction with Port Phillip Bay Fund as well. So you can actually um, take part in this by also... Uh, drawing attention to it, increasing the promotion of it. You can share some of the Facebook posts and uh, and their campaign. You can tag shops and, and really get everyone on board. So if you're interested in that, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. If you want to just do a search, just look for The Peninsula's Last Straw. And good on you guys. Dive to you taking part in that as well. Actually, last night, I just noticed on the ABC News, there was this new thing called, I think it's called Plogging. And it's a joggers, and they were jogging along the beach, and they pick up rubbish as they go. Oh, cool! So it started, I think, in Scandinavia or something, and yeah. So the no, the word comes from that, but yeah, apparently it's spreading. And the That's first good. group were in, uh, I think, Sydney. So yeah, it'd be good. Somebody down here. Excellent. Very good to do. It is eleven minutes past nine. And we're going to play a track now. I'm actually playing this for my mum, Helen from Mornington, a <laughs> long-term Triple R subscriber. Yay. So playing this for your mum. This is for Mother's Day. This is actually uh, an artist who was in last week performing live on Vital Bits. His name's Justin Bernasconi, and uh, he wowed us with how lovely his music was. So I wanted to play this one. It's called Careless Shells. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Yes, indeed, you are. 9.15. Um, if you just tuned in, that was Justin Bernasconi with Careless Shells, taken from his new release album, Barefoot Wonderland. That was beautiful. Mm. Um, yes, Brady Marinaro in the studio. We have Terry Allen, Bron Burton, and my name's Dr Beach. A couple of weeks ago, we mentioned, um, well, it was, it was all over the media, a sea urchin cull, which was happening in the northwestern part of the bay, so off around Werribee and Williamstown, those areas. And it was, um, yeah, fascinating, talking about... People, Paul Carnell is his name. We happen to have him on the phone very soon, going out there with a few other people and knocking off a few sea urchins. And some people might think, well, these are natural things out there in the environment. Why should we get rid of them? We've decided to get Paul on the phone to tell us all about it. So welcome very much, Paul Carnell from Deakin University. How are you this morning? Good. Thanks, Dr. Beats, and, and good morning, uh, and, and good morning, everyone else out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We've got Bron, Bron and Terry here as well. Bron and Terry, as well as people lying in bed, cozying it up <laughs> and, and, and wanting to know all about these urchins. Paul, I'd just like to start off with um, mm. sea urchins. Are, the sea urchins that um, were culled are natural phenomenon in the bay, or natural phenomena in the bay, but they are herbivores, so they eat lots of seaweeds. It's their natural diet. Mm. How long have yeah. you been tracking this? Did you get an idea that <laughs> the numbers of seaweeds were decreasing in this part of the bay at least and there was someone who was doing, well, the, the sea urchins were getting tucked into them? Yeah, so it was actually uh, back when I started my PhD, which was in 2010. Uh, and I knew I wanted to work on kelps in the bay because they're so amazing and really cool. Um, and then actually it was uh, from Parks Victoria came and chatted with my supervisor. Um, and a lot of uh, people in the community, so diving around Jawbone and Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuaries, were going to parks and saying, oh, you know, we're noticing a lot of sea urchins at the moment mm. and they're eating out a lot of the kelp in, in these different areas. And you now maybe this is something that should be looked into. Um, so, yeah, I guess I kind of got tasked a little bit with, with trying to figure out what was happening. Was this just a natural thing that happens every so often? Um, or, yeah, is this something that we should actually be a bit concerned about? How did you, um, how so did you go about approaching that, Paul? Because if you're trying <laughs> to work out whether this is a change, but you've kind of been mm. brought in potentially, you, you're not, you don't have the opportunity to do a before and after because the before's already happened potentially. Yeah. How do you approach that? So, yeah, it was actually quite interesting. I, I almost had to become a bit more of a, uh, yeah, a little bit more of a historian, kind of going uh, delving back into old theses that had been done in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and, yeah, trying to collate any data that I could that had already been uh, done in the past, um, but also going back through the historical uh, aerial image archive, uh, that, that our Victoria has and when you have just the right conditions and the right photo you can actually see how much seaweed is covering the reefs in these different areas so we, we managed to get photos back to the 1930s and 1940s 
Um, and yeah, from the in-water survey, we could get data back to the 60s and 70s. So yeah, that meant we could kind of put piece together this picture of yeah what's been happening over the last uh, 50 years or so. Fascinating. So, um, so it's a little bit like a detective story, like to go back and you think, <laughs> yes, indeed, there were a lot more weeds there. What what is what has changed? What do you, is is it a cyclical thing that we know about with urchins that they go through a boom and a bust, and that this happened to be a boom time for the urchins? Yeah. So the, there definitely were periods in the past where there were uh, uh, large numbers of urchins in some areas. Um, so kind of creating uh, little pockets where they would eat out everything. So little parts of Point Cook uh, back in the 80s, uh, they were known to be, uh, yeah, uh, some high numbers of urchins in a couple of little places, uh, even off Williamstown in the deeper parts of the reef, um, which in Williamstown is about five or six metres. But yeah. <laughs> um, some of those bits had some higher urchins that would come and go. I'm a little bit more kind of cyclical, yeah, back in the 80s as well. Um, but, yeah, what we really saw was that there might be some of these patterns that would come and go a little bit over that time, but what happened during yeah the 2000s uh, as we went through uh, the millennium drought um, is when we really saw, uh, yeah, the kelp start to... So actually what happened was that the kelp started to uh, die off a little bit and because the urchin numbers had grown up o- over time, uh, their food was dwindling and then you had this really big urchin population and then they then went through and cleared out, uh, yeah, most of the kelp off the reef in Williamstown and, and around Point Cook. Uh, even Bo Morris saw some really big changes around uh, Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuary. Um, and yeah, that was really unlike anything that had happened over the last 50 or 60 years. So, so it truly was unusual. Are, are the urchins, yeah. are they, do they go for any seaweed? So we've been talking about kelps here, so brown seaweed. Yeah. Um, and there's several different types of those, but do they just mm. eat, say, the browns, the kelps? They go tuck into some greens and reds as well? or? Yeah, so during that period, um, so because, yeah, there was so little food, they switched the way in which they feed. So most of the time they would sit there and they'd just catch anything that kind of drifts past, but... During that period in the 2000s, they switched their mode of feeding and all of a sudden they're actively moving around and in some places they almost form these fronts of sea urchins going along, you know, a a band of about a metre wide, but you might get up to 50 sea urchins (laughs) per metre in that that one metre band and they would move around like that and slowly... Uh, eat eat everything. So yeah, at that point they're not picky. They're they're, they're eating anything they can. Um, <laughs> I, I can almost hear some people thinking out there. So why should we interfere with this? I mean, so these urchins mm. and it's, it's one species I, I I think which is endemic to this area. They're having a good time at the moment. Why should we interfere? <laughs> uh, I guess what has been particularly concerning as well is that so we went through yeah that that period two thousand ten to probably 2014, where they really, you know, uh, cleared the slate of a lot of the reefs in in the northern part. But uh, areas up around Williamstown and Point Cook, even since then, we haven't really seen them starting to come back like what they used to be. And it's been about two or three years now, and, uh, yeah, I guess it kind of felt like, okay, this is something that we haven't seen before and then now we're also not seeing it recover on its own. So right. maybe some of these areas we should think about, is there something we can do? Um, and particularly in the marine sanctuaries, which is where we've actually focused the current project, um, where, yeah, the job of Park Victoria is to maintain biodiversity and ecosystem processes in the parks. Uh, so I guess, yeah, they were particularly concerned about say, Jawbone Marine Sanctuary and and, uh, Rick and uh, Point Cook. And just also, Paul, that point about um, this is not... It's, it's, it's bad enough that it's the algae that are being impacted, but it's the algae support a community of all sorts of creatures in its own right. So we're not, we're not just talking about a bunch of sea urchins going yeah. having a nice time <laughs> eating some algae. It's the flow-on effects to the rest of the ecology of the region too, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, I was seeing firsthand during that period when I was doing surveys, these beautiful kelp reefs and you'd see flathead uh, and and you'd see snook in there and all these other great fish. 
And as the urchins came through and ate everything out, we just wouldn't see a lot of those fish in that same reef anymore. Um, so it was actually really sad working in the bay during that period and, and seeing this happen. Um, so, yeah, I think it's nice to kind of be able to get on the front foot a bit now and, uh, yeah, and see what we can do to help out. So with the helping out, the, the cull itself, can you describe that? Was it just you? Was it a few people that got out there? And, and how did you, um, how'd you deal with the urchins? Yeah, so so this project is a collaboration between Deakin University and uh, the University of Melbourne. I think you had uh, Dr. Rebecca Morris on the program. We did, yeah. Weeks ago, yeah. So, so yeah. So Becky and I are, are, are leading this project, uh, also with uh, Parks Victoria, and it was funded through the state government's uh, Port Phillip Bay Fund. Um, so where they wanted to put money into uh, rehabilitation projects happening in Port Phillip Bay. Uh, and so this is really a trial. So there haven't really been too many other urchin uh, culling programs in, in Victoria. Um, so Parks Victoria were really keen to do it in their parks, but also to have a bit of a trial to see how effective it is, how often we might have to go out and do this. Um, I guess before we think about doing it on, on any broader scale. So we've gone out and we've set up uh, 10 by 10 metre areas uh, we've done a few of those and we then go to those specific spots uh, and we're diving with yeah, uh, with us from the universities and Parks Victoria. We've also had a couple of uh, divers from the community come out as well. Um, and so, yeah, they've been helping us, yeah, start this trial in the marine sanctuaries and I guess uh, after we get a... Uh, um, after a year or two, we'll we'll get a feeling for how it's going, whether it's working, uh, and then we'll start to look at what options there are um, more broadly. Yeah, see how it's working. But when you when you're doing the cull, do you go out there uh, and you kill the urchins there on the spot, or do you pick them up, take them off, put them in yeah. the landfill, eat them, sell them to Japanese <laughs> restaurants? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So. So, um, so in this particular project, uh, because they're in the marine parks, we actually can't take them and then sell them. Uh, so we do. So, yeah. Eat so them. We do. Yeah. So unfortunately, yeah, because it is the marine park, we can't sell them or eat them. So, um, but I guess it's probably somewhat analogous to uh, what can be done, say, for kangaroos or or, or other things terrestrially, uh, where where they might need to be culled, but. Um, another component of the broader project, um, and this is what uh, the University of Melbourne are leading, is actually looking into, um, yeah, can we actually take these sea urchins and then be able to sell them? Um, one, one slight, uh, one, one little hiccup with that is, is that once the urchins have eaten everything and they're on these really barren, bare reefs, uh, they no longer taste any good, <laughs> right? <laughs> because right. because it's actually they the, don't have any they don't have any food to eat. Um, it's actually the gonads but, that people eat, I think, isn't it? It's roe. Yeah, yeah the roe. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Oh, yeah. And I think roe is just a nicer word. I think it's roe. That's right. It's a nicer word than gonad. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. Terry. Terry always does that. For, you know, you've just got to put up with it. You know, she, she's a diver. Sorry. Well, I guess you're yeah. right. <laughs> but, but, but I guess where I'm leading is I, I kind of know the answer to this. And you, you went out there with hammers, didn't you, and knocked them on the head? Yeah. So that that was kind of the most efficient way of doing it. So uh, the time, yeah. You didn't um, use hand so. spears or spear guns? <laughs> I would have thought that'd be faster. Yeah, well, I guess because we were diving, um, yeah. so we could kind of be right down there, but... I think in the future, if we were to think about other programs where it could potentially be done by snorkelers in areas that are shallow enough, then, yeah, then I think potentially something like that could work. Paul, can I, um, yeah. can I ask if you looked around the um, South Road Reef area around Brighton? Because a lot of us divers use that area mm. for training and just for other diving, and we've, we have noticed a lot of sea urchins there. <laughs> Yeah, the areas I've focused on weren't around there, but just in various kind of reconnaissance uh, dives, particularly initially, yeah, 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 kind of also noticed a lot around 
uh, yeah, a lot around Brighton, but yeah, it wasn't one of the areas I focused on specifically. Okay. Yeah. Paul, where um, what well, Brighton? You got a quick? Question. Yeah, just a quick question. This is actually from Nerida, who's um, who's panelling for us today around mm. the the difference between clearing an area and and thinning it out. So, you know, mm. is there a middle ground where potentially we might just want to kind of reduce the numbers, but not actually completely annihilate them? Yeah, no, no, no that's a, a, a really good question. Um, so another little component I looked at uh, uh, during my PhD was, yeah, I was exactly that. But um, And so in, in some areas we reduced the number by half uh, and then in other areas we kept them all out. And unfortunately it was only in the areas where we kept them all out that we actually got things coming back in the future. Um, but one of the weird things with the way this, dynamic works is uh, so you might only need two or three urchins to keep an area bare but once you have that system come back um, you know and all the kelp and all the other seaweeds come back actually two or three sea urchins uh, per meter is actually a fire number to occur on that reef so it's only in that recovery phase mm. and then actually having urchins back in there is fine and normal and yeah and we would definitely want that to happen so yeah it's this funny kind of balance that we have to strike between trying to get things to come back yeah paul it's been fascinating talking to you we thank you very much and we'd really like to get you back on in i don't know in a few months um to see how this is going and how how this has all panned out and i know that you've got lots of other interesting projects happening in the um in the watery world around victoria so again it'd be great to get you on sometime again soon but um Thank you very much, Paul Carnell from Deakin yeah. University for describing to us, um, yeah, what's happening with the, the urchins and the seaweeds in the northwestern part of the bay here on Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.7 3 Triple R. You know where it is. <gasps> Anyone seen Breath yet? No, not yet. No. No, looking no. forward to it. Mm. Yeah, me too. I was saying last week, I'm a little nervous about it. I think because I love the book so much. And you love Tim Winton so much. Well, oh, yeah, of well, course. How can you not love him? <laughs> um, just a quick one before we move into the dive report. I had a very quick chat with Paul um, off air while we were listening to those announcements. He just wanted to make a point that um, in terms of the urchin cull, uh, he understands that there um, has been a circulation of an article that was written about this around mm. to dive shops encouraging divers to go out there and kill urchins. Uh. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that, but that's disturbing. <laughs> it's good to know that. Yeah. And, um, yes, if you've come across that, that's uh, what what Paul is doing is part of a very organised program and uh, it's it's being very tightly organised and run and monitored. Um, so we certainly would encourage people to go out there and, and just uh, randomly kill urchins. There we go. Got yeah, that in? Good. That's thanks, right. thanks for letting us know that, Paul. Terry, dive report. All right, quick dive report. Um, just so obviously with the weather hasn't been so great, but we're starting to see some fantastic uh, big uh, cuttlefish coming back into Blairgowrie and hoping to see some nice uh, mating behaviour and everything like we did last year. Uh, we're heading off to the giant cuttlefish in South Australia, Wyala, in June, which will be very exciting. Spider crabs have been uh, coming and going and uh, they're very, uh, can be a little bit unpredictable, but has been some great, uh, great uh, groups of spider crabs seen mainly off uh, Blairgarry and Rye Pier. And a quick sailing report, my partner Jeff went out yesterday off St Kilda and uh, very nice strong southwesterly, so not good for diving, but great for sailing. Excellent. <laughs> and the, uh, the water temperature thinks around... 16, 15, it's starting to plummet, yeah. yeah. Still manageable. Yeah, in a dry suit. In a dry suit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's coming up to 9.34, 26 minutes to 10, and waiting to come into the studio to speak with us is Ross Holmberg from Phillip Island Nature Park. He's coming in shortly to talk to us about Seal Spotters, which is a new portal that was uh, released during the week. And while we get Ross in studio, a bit of Nouvelle Vague, and this was taken from their third album, um, featuring Marina Celeste and Terry Hall. It's called Our Lips Are Sealed. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en 3 Triple R. 
and tres triple ere. And before that, that was Nouvelle Vague with uh, Our Lips Are Sealed, or as we've come to know it, Terry. Alex the Seal. <laughs> <laughs> Alex the Seal. Yakety yak, yak, yak. We kind of... We get, like it. We get enjoyment out of that. <laughs> It's the uh, the gift that keeps on giving. 22 minutes to 10 and you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, there's a good reason why seals are known as the dogs of the sea. Their playful, inquisitive nature, their willingness to gracefully engage underwater with we far more clumsy humans. And adding to this, their irresistible big puppy eyes engaging with seals is one of the most fantastic, evolutive experiences. It's a shame you need a boat and snorkelling or diving gear to be able to do it. Well, not anymore. This week, Phillip Island Nature Parks launched its seal spotter portal, meaning now that you can be alongside seal researchers in actually taking part in research that includes assessing seal numbers, locating pups and spotting seals in distress from plastic entanglement. To tell us all about this wonderful and exciting new development, we're very pleased to welcome into the Triple R studios, he's come all the way from Phillip Island this morning, from Phillip Island Nature Park Research Technical Officer Ross Holmberg. Good morning, Ross. Good morning. Welcome to Triple R to Radio Marinara. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Now, let's start with your job. You're a research officer at Phillip Island Nature Park. Yes. Um, do people tell you you've got the best job in the world? Uh, yes, regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so jealous. <laughs> what does it involve? What do you do? Uh, uh, so I'm, I work across uh, a few different projects. My background is in uh, other areas other than biology. I'm a bit of a biology beginner, but um, I have a lot to offer in other areas. So I, I sort of uh, spread myself as thin as possible across as many projects as possible. So I get to work with seals and uh, eastern barred bandicoots and uh, shearwaters and penguins and mm. all kinds of things, yeah. Wow. Fantastic. <laughs> what does that involve on a daily basis? On so a daily sound, basis? It sounds very glamorous and fabulous. Yeah, yeah. No, m- most of my work is not in the field. So I, I spend a fair bit of time in front of my computer doing a lot of uh, data analysis and um, organising big data sets and things like that, um, which yeah, is is the less glamorous part of it, but it's useful to a lot of people. So I'm happy about that. Absolutely critical. So let's talk about the SEAL research um, before we introduce the actual portal. Um, wondering if you can talk us through some of the more conventional methods of SEAL research. Yeah, so... Well, the key sort of metric that is useful to get from these seal colonies is is the breeding success. Uh, and that's one thing that we can see fairly easily. Um, thankfully, seals are a species that, that do come to land to breed. So um, likewise with the penguins and shearwaters, it's one of the reasons we, we like to follow them. So we can see what's happening on land. And so basically we go out and, and count the seal pups. Uh, the pups are the ones that aren't going out to sea so much, so they're easier to count. Um, they also look a little bit different from the adults. So, But conventionally, we would be going out, uh, and mostly other people, as I say, I'd be sitting in front of my computer, but um, going out to the, to the colonies, some of which are fairly remote, um, walking around through them and counting those pups, either just straight by eye, so, so just trying our best not to disturb them, uh, pretty difficult when you're walking through the colony, count them uh, by eye, uh, and we'd do that a few times, obviously, to, to get a better number. The other method is called a capture mark resite. So that one, we actually have to go out there twice. Uh, the first time is to capture and mark uh, some of the pups. We try and go for about half. The mark is a little haircut, um, which is pretty harmless, but uh, obviously it's not nice having to be held and have your hair cut. Uh, and then the second outing uh, after the colony settled down and, and sort of regrouped, is to count uh, by eye again, but now we're counting how many seals we can see overall, as well as how many marked and how many clear. So that that's, adds a bit of statistical power to that um, to give it a little bit more, uh, a, bit, a bit of a better number. Uh, both of those methods, obviously, pretty uh, invasive on the colony. Um, so it's necessary to be really, really careful about when we go out there, how often we go out there, uh, and how we do it when we're out there. So, so there's a lot we need to be careful with. Is it possible to do some of that work by using a drone? Fancy you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> Good segue. I know I know it's noisy, but I thought it would, yeah, maybe yeah, be less... that wasn't disruptive. a loaded question at all. <laughs> so, no, it wasn't? Well, you've <laughs> entered my wheelhouse. So um, be, being the person that, that sits in front of a computer a lot, um, sort of programming things and, and getting little machines to do the work for us is, is kind of my area. Mm. Um, so that's exactly what we're trying to do now. So so the drones, great idea, is a perfect way to, to get to those, especially the remote colonies, yeah. without having to get into them quite as much. Uh, and we've worked really hard to see how we can do that, and, and including you know how big a drone we can use, how high we can fly, things like that, without uh, having an, a negative impact on the colony. So we fly as low as we can. So this is exactly what we do, is mm. we, we fly a drone or a UAV or RPA, depending on who you are and who you're talking to. But um, Can we just do that? Yeah, go UAV? 
RPA? Yeah. What are they? What does that stand for? Remote. So, so you, yeah, R- RPAS, RPAS is the is CAS's sort of uh, classification. So, so that's uh, remotely piloted aircraft systems. Mm-hmm. Um, a UAV generally is referred to unmanned aerial vehicle. Okay. We like to say unpiloted, uh, and I'd like to uh, <laughs> nice. encourage that. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> so unpiloted aerial vehicle. They're all the same thing. Uh, we, we, we say drone generally because people know what we're talking about, but, yep. um, yeah, those acronyms are a little bit more appropriate for the more formal uh, audiences. Um, but so, yeah, we're able to, to fly those over the colony in such a way that the colony... The, the seals in the colony basically don't know we're there. Mm. There's no measurable impact that we can see. Very, very minor things. So we mm-hmm. see one or two of the seals in the colony of the several thousand out there lift their head. That's about as far as the, the disturbance goes. Uh, and we're able to get enough detail in the photos that we capture from them to count really, uh, really accurately and precisely how many seals are out there. And that that's sort of what we're doing now is to, is trying to... Re- trying to um, ascertain exactly how accurately and precisely we can do that and, and whether it's uh, a good method to replace the old methods or at least to to you know uh, upgrade things so mm. that we can we can do our surveys more regularly we can do we can have less impact on the colonies uh, and and with how we're doing it now we're um, also hoping to be able to encourage the community to get involved which is sort of something that we do generally as an organization so um, we uh, fill upon the nature parks if most people know us for the penguins um, we we so most people know us for how you come and visit us and things like that, but we consider ourselves a conservation organisation first and foremost, and we encourage people to come and visit because we want them to get involved. We want them to see what's out there and, and get an experience of the wildlife that they may not see in their everyday lives. And so this is the way we can do that for people who can't even come down to the island. So you can be anywhere in the world mm. and have a look at the seals uh, and even, bonus, contribute to seal research. Mm. So. Now you talked about seal... Um, uh, Phillip Island and yeah. obviously Seal Rocks is the place, the colony that most of us would be familiar with. Yeah. You've, so you've been talking about remote colonies. Whereabouts are they? So uh, I don't, uh, I would consider Seal Rocks to be fairly remote. Okay. Uh, it's about a <laughs> kilometre and a half off of Phillip Island. So mm. the only way to get there is we need to charter a boat. Yep. Uh, and then we'll usually charter a, a larger boat, which can carry a smaller boat, a little rubber ducky, and then get off onto the smaller boat and get onto the island. So it, it's fairly remote in that way. Um, there are other colonies sort of right across Victoria. So, mm. so one Cape, of the things... Cape Bridgewater and um, yeah, Portland? Yes. So, so there's, yeah, right from east to west of mm. Victoria, uh, Dean Mar, um, the Scaries. Mm. There's, there's a few of the... Um, Where are the Scaries? Sorry? The Scaries right up near the New South Wales border. Okay. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so, uh, yeah, a few of them more remote than others. Um, most of those we need to get on boats to get out to. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we still need to do that with the drone, UAV, RPA, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we can do it in a, at a much smaller scale uh, and we don't need to actually land on the in the colony. So that's sort of one of the really big things that we want to get uh, away from as much as we can. It, this doesn't replace all of those other research techniques. There's a lot that we can't do with a drone, but there's a few things that we can. And so we can sort of start to step back a little bit at least. So Ross, you, you want people to get involved in this. You've got a lot of footage from the UAVs, drones, yeah. and you want people to, you need hands to, eyes to analyse these. Exactly, yeah. So there, there are a lot of seals in these colonies, which you'll start to see if you start to look at the photos. Um, so yeah, we, we're basically asking the community to get involved and the way to do that is to get online. So we have our websites, it's, we call it Seal Spotter, which you, you can generally find just by putting it into Google and searching and it's, it's one of the first, it's been the first for me, but I don't know how much my search history affects that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but natureparksresearch.com.au uh, forward slash uh, Seal Spotter is the address to go to. And basically that'll, you'll get a little uh, tutorial to start with on how to count the seals, which will hopefully show you a little bit about the seals as well. Difference between adults and pups and and we also ask people to look for entangled seals. So that's something where a, a seal that might have uh, had a, a negative encounter with marine uh, plastics or marine debris yep. of other kinds. Um, so the, not only can we now follow, uh, you know, hopefully improve the method by which we follow the population of the seals, uh, but also likewise the method by which we follow, uh, you know, the the number of marine entanglements that the seals, seals come encountered with. Can we talk um, through the actual portal and how yeah. it works? I had a look at it Absolutely. last night. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually go in and register. I yeah. got to that point, but I did have a look at the YouTube um, video. Yeah, uh, Vimeo. I went, 
Sorry, yes, yes. It's all right. I, don't, I just don't want to give uh, props where they're not due. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. That's right. Um, and your your collaborator, your your partner in crime with this? So Dr. Rebecca McIntosh, yes. she, she's the project lead on this. Um, yeah, so so you want me to take, take you through yeah, a little bit about it? Yeah, just so, take us through the portal. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically um, when you log into the – or when you, when you load up that website – um, we've got a little video that you can watch, which is mostly of uh, Beck, so Dr. Rebecca McIntosh, uh, taking you through exactly what we're hoping to get out of the project and, and how you can help with it. And once you go through the next couple of screens, you'll uh, enter your name and we don't intend to mine anyone's personal data, so we encourage you if you don't feel like it, just use a pseudonym, make up a name for yourself. Uh, the one thing that helps us with is to track, uh, you know, which different people are doing the, the counts. So we need to get replicates of all those counts. Uh, and it's not important to know who you are, but it's important to know uh, that you're the same person who counted another image. Mm. And then the images will start to pop up. And basically you select a type of seal that you're counting uh, and then just start to click on them in the image. So in that way, it's fairly self-explanatory. But So when you say yeah. type of seal, what, uh, yes, what sorry. does that mean? Okay, so... so we, at the moment, we're, we're trying to get people to classify whether the seals in the image are adults or juveniles, which is a, just a grouping. So we group all those together, which is a fairly broad grouping. Uh, it can go anywhere from a big male to a juvenile, which may be, you know, a year, 18 months old. Um, they're generally similar colour and, and Beck helps you out in the video to see the difference there. We've got a few example images of how to tell the difference. And then pups. So the pups, uh, when they're really young, have got a different type of fur than the adults and the juveniles. So they, are, they look a little bit differently, different in that way. And then the third classification is entanglement. So hopefully we don't see too many, but um, when you do see some a seal that looks like it's got something stuck, usually around its neck, um, then you can mark that as well. So, so adults and juveniles, pups and entanglements. And then whatever you see in the image, some images you'll see nothing, so you just click on to the next image. Some images you'll see 50 or, or more uh, seals and they might be of various different flavours, uh, adults and juveniles and pups and entanglements. So you basically just uh, click on each of the seals that you can see in the image and tell us what they are, essentially. I imagine if people yeah. are taking part in this and they do spot an entangled one, they're probably yeah. going to want to notify you or, yes. or someone straight away. Yeah. Yeah. Is there the option of doing that as well? Or is that something the, that you will pick up immediately if someone clicks entangled? So so you can notify us immediately if you want to. We do have an email. Um, but these, the, the survey, so we're not in a position to see a seal entangled on the, on the screen, jump on a boat, and go out and save it, mm. unfortunately. Um, we have a more uh, big picture view of it in that we're trying to follow how big that problem is, uh, use that information to affect change, and then hopefully in the long term we have less of that problem altogether. So we do go out and uh, release as many seals as we can from entanglements uh, periodically, um, but we don't at a moment's notice jump in a boat and go out and get them. And that's best for the colony as a whole uh, it may not be best for that individual seal, but the chances are we, we wouldn't be able to find anyway. Um, so yeah, you, you can notify us immediately, and I would encourage people to uh, use that email if they feel if they feel like it. Um, don't hesitate. I'll most likely see the email and read it. Mm. Um, and and we love hearing from users, so uh, I do encourage them to do that. But um, yeah, we can't just jump on boats anytime. <laughs> I'd like to encourage that you know obviously from the the divers and the dive shops and all the all the people that have done the fish counts, which yeah. are, you know, they could easily now transfer as a little winter hobby. They're yeah. not out there underwater counting fish. Maybe <laughs> now we can start counting seals, which of course divers absolutely love. So, yeah, and that's so. that's one of the really good things about um, citizen science projects like this, not, mm. not just ours, there's a lot out there, um, is that they get uh, communities involved that are sort of vaguely like-minded, but may not have really thought about those um, other parts of the environment that they're, they're in. Yeah. Um, and get them a little bit involved and more connected with what's going on out there. Uh, and I think, you know, personally, and, mm. I, and I think I can speak on behalf of my organisation, that, that we believe that if people are a little bit more uh, closely in touch with the environment and also the research that's happening there and the information that we're getting from that research, then they will, um, you know, make changes where, where they need to happen. Um, not that everyone needs to change their life to make things better, but, um, you know, there, there are little things that we can do and people would be more, more inclined yeah, to do that. If the they plastics were. and all that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And a lot of things are really, really minor 
uh, changes that we would um, be hoping people to do. You know, it's like um, w- when you're going out diving, just be a little bit more careful what you leave behind. That's, mm. you know, really basic things like that um, that may not enter your mind until you've actually really, uh, you know, had a connection with the with what's out there. Great. Awesome. We would love to have you back in because you've got the uninterviewable task of actually analysing the outputs from this portal. (laughs) So um, I was going to ask you about how you're going to do that, but I think we might pause on that and then uh, you don't have to come all the way back next time. You're (laughs) very welcome to or we'll get you on the phone, but just to talk about some of the outputs and uh, and some of the trends that you're finding and and what you can do with this information. No, I'd love to come back. You guys have got a nice coffee machine. I'll be back. <laughs> awesome. And just a quick plug uh, again, it's natureparksresearch.com.au um, forward slash seal spotter. But uh, last night I just went straight in and just put into the search engine of my choice, not wanting to give promotion to any in particular, um, seal spotter. And it just bang, it just popped up straight yeah, away. So yeah, it's it easy. generally works. And can I just also say that anyone who does feel like going on there, we don't mind if you want to count one image or five images or a thousand images. Whatever mm. you do does help. Um, you, you don't have to be the most dedicated uh, citizen scientist out there. A little bit uh, contributes. And if a lot of people do that, it would be unbelievable. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. Thanks so, so much, Ross. Thank you. I've been speaking with Ross Holmberg from Phillip Island Nature Park about their new seal spotter portal. And we'll definitely catch up with Ross in uh, the months ahead. 9.54, this is Radio Marinara. A couple of quick station announcements. Thornbury Picture House is an original Art Nouveau garage transformed into a new independent cinema and bar right in the heart of Thornbury. Boasting a program of festival favourites, documentaries, late-night cult films, classics, children's films and rare releases. Plus large, comfortable seating, local beers, spirits and delicious snacks available at the bar. With screenings running Wednesday to Sunday, head to thornburypicturehouse.com.au to check out the full program. Thornbury Picture House at 802 High Street, Thornbury. Triple R Sponsors. RACV has partnered with Pedestrian TV to host a series of masterclasses featuring local leaders in the worlds of gaming, photography and music. On Wednesday, May 16 at Victoria University in the CBD, hear from Chris Kincotta, the self-taught photographer behind the Humans in Melbourne Facebook page and Melbourne I Love You Instagram. For a chance to be part of the audience, head to pedestrian.tv and search Masterclass. Triple R, sponsored by RACV. G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.73 Triple R. Thanks, Nerida, for playing that. Uh, five to ten. Terry Allen. We keep talking about diving in the Philippines, <laughs> but keep running out of time. Uh, once again, it's five to ten. No, no problems at all. So I did mention a little bit about our Philippines trip that uh, was a, a few weeks ago now. Uh, and just to remind you, we went uh, right down south in the southern, most southern part of the Philippines into the Sulu Sea. And uh, what's great about going down there is it's uh, as far away from people as you can get in the Philippines, which if you've ever been there, there are a lot of people. Uh, so we went to a reef called Tubataha and it's uh, a fantastic, uh, obviously, marine reserve and World Heritage listed. Uh, and one of the great places, uh, you know, we, we often go diving, obviously, to see nice big things like sharks. And uh, in recent years, it's been quite disappointing on many places we've been where the sharks are just unfortunately... Uh, reducing a number, but uh, Tubataha, we had fantastic sharks um, and including an amazing encounter with a young whale shark. Um, and what was beautiful there was it just hung around us for about a last sort of 10 minutes of the dive. Uh, I don't know much about the science. I've been trying to look up a little bit, but the, all the whale sharks there in the photos I've seen, they all have a lot of algal growth on them. They have like around their mouth and along the, the, the dorsal fin. And I don't know whether it's like a problem or if it's just something that sort of happens to happen there. Mm. Um, but, yeah, as I say, I, I don't know much about the science of that. But uh, Do they have remoras hanging around them as well? Not not very many, no. Mm. Not Whereas, you know, in, in WA and, and um, other parts of the Philippines like Cebu, I've seen, you do see the remoras. We only had this, the, the main one we saw was, was quite a young one. And... Um, but, oh, just, you know, just but, swam but, but around. Must have been amazing to swim with that. And just really, really briefly, mm. um, 
a paper's just appeared where they've tracked a whale shark, which is na- they've given the name Anne, 20,000 kilometres on an 841-day journey across the Pacific. Wow. So it started off near Costa Rica mm. and then went down to the Galapagos. And la- and when, it's, when it stopped sending signals like, you know, so the remote, when the batteries ran out, yeah. which was two and a half years later, um, it was just north of the Philippines, is it? The, the Marinara Trench. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Big. And so it was going north of the equator and mm. going on the, the north equatorial, equatorial current, current, getting dragged, or, or swimming west. Yeah. 20,000 K. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you've ever swam, I mean, you can snorkel with them, of course, or dive with them. I mean, they just, you know, one sort of slow sweep of the tail and they just travel like yeah. meters. And if you're underwater, like this one swam around us, but if you're underwater swimming next to them, you are going flat out just trying to keep up with them. So, yeah, to, you can imagine that they could travel these enormous distances. I mean, there was a documentary, I think, a few years ago in studies looking at whether they were going from Western Australia across to the Indian Ocean. And there was that sort of a theory, but I think they... I think uh, the CSIRO, I think they sort of semi-disproved that at the time. But, um, yeah, the other great thing, uh, we had lo- lots of, you know, really healthy reef, lots of big fish, uh, fantastic tuna, like just big dog tooth tuna. And they are some, they are a scary fish coming right towards you. They have no fear. They've got huge teeth, big eyes. And you're sort of, you know, lining up, take your photo and this, big animals coming right towards you and oh yeah and boy they only just turn off at the last minute ah wow but uh yeah it was just great to see what can be done where it's only three months a year you can dive there there's only four boats allowed um you know so it is super protected i did talk a little bit last time about the ranger station there um and and that was very interesting seeing the local guys um bit of employment and and monitoring and and even saw the philippines navy there i think they were sort of going snorkeling more than doing any real work but uh yeah anyway uh, it, it was a, it was a great place and the philippines has so much variable so much great diving and all different sorts of things. So highly recommend it. Fantastic. Are you going to go back? Uh, yeah, I'll probably go back. Not there. It was quite expensive and et cetera, et cetera. But I like doing the macro nudies and all that sort of stuff in, in other parts of Dumaguete. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. It's, um sounds absolutely amazing. Hey, that brings us to the end of Radio Marinara for today. Thanks to our guests, uh, Dr. Paul Carnell from Deakin University and uh, of course thanks to Ross Holmberg from Phillip Island Nature Park thanks Terry thank you thanks Dr Beach pleasure thank you uh, Nerida thank you Kent and uh, on next week's program John Ford's going to be in along with uh, Dr Diego Barnecki from the University of New South Wales he's going to be talking about a new paper brand new spanking paper that's just come out examining the impact of fish size on reproductive output turns out that size does matter and Rex is back in town to talk about all things maritime heritage stay tuned for radiotherapy they'll take you through to 11 o'clock when the Einsteiners will take you through to 12 have a wonderful mother Day, if that's what you're celebrating today, and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.